Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. This is the Words Matter Library. Lindsey Graham, welcome to Words Matter. Well, thank you. You describe yourself as a history buff. Before we talk about American history tellers and your latest podcast, I wanted to just get a little bit from you of your background, how you got into this, and why history. Sure. How I got into this and my background have largely nothing to do with podcasts or history. I became a podcaster by accident. I've always been interested in audio, mostly in the music space. So you pick up a guitar in high school and you get enamored with it. But quickly, I realized that I wasn't the greatest musician or fantastically suited to the stage, but I was in love with recording. And so even from a very early age in college, I was recording other bands and that passion continued, still continues. And so I had about me a bunch of recording equipment and prowess and experience twiddling knobs. That also led to composing and editing and then soon doing sound design for small projects here locally in Dallas. And then that ultimately led to an attempted career, attempted small business that focused on audiobooks, but also that we wanted to produce a podcast. And our first podcast was called Terms, a uh, political thriller audio drama that caught the attention of Wondery. It was written in 2015 about a popular businessman outsider ideologue who captures the White House. And uh, so... Like I said, 2015, we wrote it. We had no idea the circus that we were about to embark on. But it was topical and prescient, and, and Wondery liked it, and they picked it up. And one of the best accidental decisions I've ever made was deciding that me, as, as the creator of the show, should do the ads. Right. It didn't make any sense for the hero or villain to sell socks on a podcast right. in character. So I wrote and read the ads. Uh, my background by education is marketing, so it kind of fit. That decision was great because Hernan Lopez at Wondery really liked my ads enough so that a year later, he called me up and asked, uh, hey, we have this new podcast called Dirty John, but it's hosted by a journalist who's obligated not to do endorsements. So would you write and, and read the ads? And of course, I said yes. Uh, very quickly thereafter, he asked me another question. Hey, we, we have this idea for a history podcast. Would you be the host and do the sound design? And again, I said yes. And that was the trip into podcasting that I took. All of a sudden, American History Tellers was born. Now, he knew that I was interested in history because terms was very political, but mostly a study of government and in its own way, a, a history lesson, particularly of the 25th Amendment. And so it was a natural fit. I, I was before a business major, a history major for a little while in college, and I've always been interested in, in government and history and politics and, and the philosophy surrounding them. So I leapt enthusiastically into the space. Well, it's interesting you say that about getting into it through the ads, because in addition to being a huge fan of history tellers, American history tellers, and it really being the first podcast I listened to faithfully and religiously – I noticed your ad reading style and even things like when you had an ad for ZipRecruiter, you would talk about how hard it is 
to say ZipRecruiter, which I thought was just a really interesting way to go about it. But uh, it's incredibly hard. I, I, I admonish them for naming it that. We had ZipRecruiter as well as a um, as a sponsor, and I I took that to heart and and wrote that in for our hosts as well, uh, taking a page from your book. So American history tellers. Let's talk about that. You launched in January of 2018, and you launched at number one, which we were fortunate. We launched. We made it all the way up to number three, but Oprah was still ahead of us. You were. You, you guys launched at number one. How surprised were you when you saw that and when you realized that this was something that people wanted to listen to? I was flabbergasted. I had no expectations that it would be a number one in the country podcast. You know, there are so many obstacles to it, you would think. One, I was a nobody. Two, Wondery was still very young. Three, it's about American history, which seems academic and not a popular culture phenomenon. Not that History Tellers is a popular culture phenomenon. But yeah, the surprise was, was real. But so was the gratification, of course, of hitting number one, but realizing that, that there is a thirst for understanding more about our country. And, um, you know, from the very beginning, that was the mission. We wanted history tellers to be a story of the common man in America throughout history to gain understanding and empathy for what it meant to be American then and hopefully what it means to be American now. This country is in a tumultuous period. And I think history tellers in particular wanted to look back and feel more about being American, and it seemed it resonated. Well, I think that you very much succeeded in telling those stories through the eyes of everyday Americans, and it was one of the things that surprised and delighted me when I first tuned into your first episode about the Cold War, because as somebody who went through undergraduate as a history major, went through graduate school, got my master's degree, and I took some time off to work in a political office thinking I was going to do that between my master's and my PhD, and I got sucked into politics and never left. But even somebody who has studied these subjects in the Cold War was one of the things that I had studied fairly extensively, written papers on it and, and had a sort of a minor focus on it. I learned things listening to you and your podcast and listening to it through the eyes of as you say, of everyday Americans. Talk about how you guys decided as a team that that was the way you were going to tell the story and just a little bit about those stories because you put a lot of detail in them at the very beginning. Yeah, uh, certainly. So like I mentioned, Hernan Lopez, the head of Wondery, approached me with this concept. It was a bit nascent when he did, but he had the title, the idea, and the direction, and, and he very much wanted it to be in the style of a few other podcasts on his network, Wondery. Uh, one was Mark Ramsey's Inside series, which looks at Hollywood movies like Inside Psycho or Inside Jaws or Star Wars, and tells these kind of production line stories. And then also historian Patrick Wyman's show, Tides of History, which also brings the sweep of the fall of the Roman Empire and the, uh, the rise of modern civilization in Europe down to an individual level of the soldier, the peasant, the, the clergyman. These are all very evocative and effective and was the impetus for history tellers. In the Cold War in particular, that was our debut series because, uh, one, it was an interesting period for me. I lived through the tail end of it and I had studied it and 
it felt in that moment of 2016, 2017, that we were hearing very loud reverberations of it at the moment, right? Uh, yes. Putin had just finished annexing the Ukraine with horrible rumblings and bad relations with that country. Meanwhile, in North Korea, we've got nuclear tensions. It just seemed very Cold War to me. So if we were to try and remind Americans that we've been here before, it seemed like the Cold War was the first place to go back and, and look to. But you're right. I learned so much more about it in a fantastic way. I mean, I'm still haunted by the baby tooth survey right. that I learned about while doing this series. And I'm the father of a five-year-old, and it's shocking to me to imagine myself saving my, my daughter's first tooth and then sending it away to some lab to be ground down and analyzed in a mass spectrometer to see how much radioactivity my daughter has absorbed. You know, that was a real thing. And it proved that these kids of the 50s were absorbing a lot of radioactivity. It's, it's shocking, it's frightening, and, uh, and it's very, very personal and understandable. You start off that particular series on the Cold War with the neighbor getting a visit from the FBI. Let's take a listen. Imagine that it's 1951. You live in Rosebank, a leafy section of North Baltimore, about three miles north of Johns Hopkins University. One Friday morning, you're at home, having your second cup of coffee, when there's a knock at the door. You open it, and a man in a black suit flashes a badge. Hello, sir, I'm from the FBI. Mind if I come in and ask you a couple of questions about your neighbor, the biologist at the university? Of course. The two of you sit down to chat. You know your neighbor occasionally works for the government, so this all feels routine. How long have you known him? The agent starts off with softballs. A couple of years? What's his family like? Uh, we're not particularly close, but he's respectable, quiet, keeps to himself, teaches Sunday school at the Baptist church around the corner. In fact, uh, his, his parents were missionaries. He was born in China. Oh, China. Does he speak Chinese? You don't know. But sensing an opening, the agent gets a little more aggressive. The FBI has reason to believe that your neighbor has had contact with communist organizations. Six years ago, it seems he was the faculty sponsor for a student dance organized by American Youth for Democracy, which is a well-known communist front. Can you think of any other times your neighbor has associated with communists? This is ridiculous. He's a staunch and loyal American citizen. He has no use whatsoever for communism or any other foreign ideology. Are you sure? How do you know? How can you know? The interview ends. You show the agent out and sit back down for a few minutes to collect your thoughts. Truth be told, you don't really know your neighbor all that well. I mean, you like him, but he does sometimes express his views as slightly left of center. You remember during the war, he once asked you to sign a petition protesting segregation in the military. And in the newspapers, you've read that the civil rights movement is riddled with communists. You finish your coffee and think about your cousin's son, who's fighting the communists somewhere in the mountains of Korea. Your mind wanders a bit back to when you took your daughter to the movies last week. The newsreel before the matinee showed streams of Eastern European refugees fleeing to the West, abandoning everything for a chance at freedom. You think about mushroom clouds 
and the treasonous scientists who stole atomic secrets and passed them on to Stalin. You resolve to watch your neighbor more carefully. After all, the nation is at war. Now, in that moment, at least me as the listener, I felt a great deal of empathy with that neighbor. And I think that that is really one of the effective tools of how you and the team pull people in because you put us right in that seat. Talk a little bit about that device. Well, it, it's absolutely the most polarizing moments in in the series. Some people love these reenactments and some people are turned away. I get it. I do all the voices and I'm not a trained actor, but I do try my best to make a believable and empathy-centered scene in which you can have understanding of the neighbor who is just doing his best in a kind of weird situation who trusts his government still. I don't know if a, a suited federal agent appearing at anyone's door today would have the same openness that they did then, but it's understandable. And the important part is that the listener, like you did, feels compassion and understanding and empathy. I'm, I'm going to repeat the word empathy over and over again in this interview, but that's the point of it because that's understanding history. This is where the Red Scare came from. This is where America turned on itself without even knowing it. This is how scary the Cold War was. And you need to understand it on a very kitchen sink level. And I think the drama brings it to you. Absolutely. And we'll be right back. Just like the books and the podcasts we feature on the Words Matter Library, we have a rule. To promote a product, you have to use the product. And today I want to talk to you about Purple Mattress. I often have a hard time falling asleep at night or staying asleep. I wake up frequently feeling stiff and in the morning with pain in my neck and back. And the problem with the previous memory foam mattresses I've used is that they get way too hot and uncomfortable. But I just got a Purple Mattress and this thing is incredible. It's so comfortable. It stays nice and cool at night. It's different than anything I've ever used before. I never wake up in pain and I've been getting the best sleep I've ever had. If you're struggling to get a good night's sleep, you've got to try Purple Mattress. The Purple Mattress will probably feel different than anything you've ever experienced because it uses a brand new memory foam that was developed by an actual rocket scientist. It's not like the memory foam I'm used to. The Purple Mattress feels unique because it's both firm and soft at the same time. So it keeps everything supported while still feeling really comfortable. Plus, it's breathable, so it sleeps cool. It ends up giving you this zero-gravity-like feel, so it works for any sleeping position. Purple Mattress offers a 100-night risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. It's backed by a 10-year warranty. There's free shipping and returns and free in-home setup and old mattress removal. You're going to love Purple, and right now our listeners will get a free Purple pillow with the purchase of a Purple mattress. That's in addition to the great free gifts they're offering site-wide. Just text WORDS, one word, to 84888. The only way to get this free pillow is to text WORDS to 84888. That's one word, WORDS, to 84888. Message and data rates may apply. And we're back. Now, the next topic you tackled was prohibition. Talk for a minute about why, after the huge success of 
Cold War in the series to start off with, you picked Prohibition. So we definitely chose the Cold War as our first topic deliberately. And we struck upon a very, just a great writer, Audra Wolf, who knocked it out of the park for us in terms of tone and really set the tone for the series. Immediately, though, we realized that that was a lightning in a bottle and we, we wouldn't capture it so easily. So we were auditioning a lot of writers, a lot of historians and researchers. And honestly, I think it was just the production schedule that led us to grabbing the first one that was close to, to being ready. I will admit the production schedule is still onerous and I am running week to week, barely getting these things out. So the prohibition was not so deliberately chosen as a thematic thing, but it quickly became a thematic mirror of our times, again, as almost all of these were, because as I learned, prohibition wasn't only about alcohol, it was about women's suffrage, and it was also about anti-immigrant sentiment, almost more so than the sobriety of a nation. Absolutely. I mean, that struck me as well listening. And as somebody who knew a little bit about prohibition, knew about the legalities and how it got passed and the temperance movement, but the way you put it through the lens of suffrage and, like you said, the anti-immigration movement was really fascinating. And I think it's also one of the things that you guys do extremely well. Most times when people teach history or study history, we do it to our detriment in a vacuum. We look at those discrete events and we really don't pay attention so much to the things that are going on in the world around when you're focused, when you're writing a master's thesis or a dissertation or any of those things. But in Prohibition, it's a great example of tying those things in. And I love the way you begin that one uh, as well. It's the waiter in New York at the high-end hotel. Talk for a minute about how Prohibition embodied those two things about suffrage and the anti-immigration movement in, in this country and how it culminated in the passage by 1990? Well, the temperance movement was largely a woman-led movement. And at the time, of course, though, the women had no political power. So it was only natural that women with a social cause would quickly realize that they have no ability to enact it unless they got the vote. Those two missions were very swiftly entangled. There were, of course, temperance movements who had no interest in the suffrage movement. They became natural allies. Now, at the same time, another great wave of American immigration at the turn of the century and the exact moment of industrialization in our country. So for many average Americans, and of course, we mean stemming from the original colonies, so Protestant whites, their country was changing. Not only were Eastern Europeans and Italians and Greeks coming over with their own language and custom, very different from what was there before, but they were coming over and working in these conditions and factories that had never existed before, filling up the cities and changing what was urban America and creating a greater divide from rural America and North and South as well. So these exacerbating differences created what we might call a moral panic. There was no real problem there, except that people thought there was a problem there. Right. And one thing that these immigrants did was congregate at bars right. <laughs> after work. The temperance movement was therefore co-opted 
by a nefarious white power structure that realized that they could take this away from immigrants while probably preserving their own ability to imbibe at their leisure. And that's, of course, exactly what happened. So it was to legislate the immigrants out of not just their their recreation, but to be able to ticket them, to be able to find them, to be able to get them out of wherever that they weren't wanted. So we have many, many different movements, all striving to do different things, but they all found a tool in temperance. So fascinating. And I have to say, it felt like you could have been talking about America in 2016, 2017, 2018, as I listened in the strife and the industrialization or the sort of economic upheaval. And the other thing I think you do well, and particularly in that series, was you take the anecdotal stories and you move them around the country. You don't just focus on one area. I think one of the places you talked about was a factory in the Midwest with the immigrants gathering in the bar, and you just move them around to different places. And I think that's really important because it gives everybody in the country a sense that they shared in this history. I think it is important. I mean, New York and Washington aren't America. They never have and never will be, although clearly important. But there are millions of families all across America who make decisions that are historically important, at least in their small neighborhood. And I want American history to feel the same way. Now, I think that's an amazing thing. The next one I just wanted to talk about briefly because it was one of those times where I listened to your story at the beginning and I literally went right to the internet and said, I have to check that. Did that really happen? And it was in the age of Jackson when you have Washington on fire and the clerk at the State Department. And that's the other thing you do so well is you start these stories often 10, 20, sometimes 30 years before the actual story itself gets rolling because you show the roots of it. Talk a little bit about that moment where the clerk saves all of those important founding documents. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. And I have to give absolute credit to the writer of that particular episode, Stephen Walters, who happens to be the creator and lead writer of 1865, another audio drama podcast of mine. He found this incredible anecdote that it was 100% true. The city of Washington was burning. The Brits had torched it. And this one clerk scrambles over to gather all the precious documents of the founding of the United States. Let's take a listen. Imagine it's August 24th, 1814. You're a clerk at the State Department. Rumors of an impending British invasion are rampant, and the residents of Washington City are in a panic. People are fleeing the city in droves, hysterical over the prospect of a British attack on the Capitol. You stand side by side with a fellow clerk on the front steps of the State Department, waiting for orders from the Secretary of State. Do you think the Brits are coming? I, I don't know. And that's the truth. You don't know. No one does. Four days ago, British troops landed at the port town of Benedict, Maryland, started advancing north. That very same day, your boss, Secretary of State James Monroe, and a small envoy of scouts left Washington to spy on the British forces and determine their ultimate destination. It's here or Baltimore. Where else would they be marching? You don't have an answer. All you have are your orders. Hold your position at the State Department and await further instructions. And so, standing on the front steps, overlooking the melee of panicked citizens in the streets, you wait. The British and the Americans have been at war for almost two years now. The War of 1812 between the United States and Britain began as part of a much wider conflict in Europe, the Napoleonic Wars, 
that pitted Great Britain against France. When in April 1814, Napoleon Bonaparte, the self-styled Emperor of the French, had been defeated and forced into exile. With the French out of the way, the British were free to concentrate their efforts against their former colony, the United States. Standing on the steps of the State Department, something in the street catches your eye. A lone rider at full gallop barrels through the crowd. A dispatch from Secretary Monroe, sir. The enemy are in full march for Washington. Your heart sinks, but there's no time for despair. The British are coming to Washington. With no troops to defend her, the capital will surely fall. But your orders aren't to defend the city. Secretary Monroe has charged you with an altogether different task. Take the best care of the official books and papers of the office. All the documents are invaluable, but time is running out, and this is triage. So you start with the most important documents, the records of the Continental Congress, George Washington's papers, and the United States Constitution. You order the men to load up the wagons as you step back inside the State Department for one final look. That's when you see it, hanging there on the wall of the State Department in a dark wooden frame. How could you have forgotten this? You reach into your pocket pull out a small knife, and cut the document right out of its frame. You wrap the precious parcel in linen and load it in the back of one of the carts. Where to, sir? Edgar Patterson's mill, just across the river. And with that, your duty is done. The carts leave Washington City, bound for the Virginia side of the Potomac River, carrying with them the earliest recorded history of the United States. Later that night, you sit down and pour yourself a much-deserved glass of brandy when it hits you. You've made a terrible mistake. The Patterson Mill is close to a foundry contracted by the American government to make arms, cannon, and shells. The Brits will no doubt sack the mill and confiscate the munitions, which means you've just sent your charge right into the path of the British Army. You mount your horse and gallop off into the night. You round up the wagons one by one, over 20 of them in all, and redirect the documents to their new destination, a safe house in Leesburg, Virginia, well out of harm's way. Exhausted, and with the documents securely stowed away, you check into an inn to rest for the night. You fall into a deep sleep before your head even hits the pillow. You don't hear the sounds of British troops marching outside your window in the night. You don't hear the growing silence as those troops move further and further away towards their fateful destination. And through the window, looking very much like the dark wooden frame from which you cut the Declaration of Independence, you don't see the flames creeping up over the tree line as Washington begins to burn. It's one of those moments where, as somebody who studied American history, had no idea that one State Department clerk left with all these important documents, Washington's papers, the Constitution, and on the way out the door, noticed the Declaration of Independence hanging and said, oh my God, I almost forgot to take that. Yeah, absolutely startling. Yeah, it's a fantastic moment. And let's talk about, I want to transition into your latest project, but the the last one I want to talk about for a minute is political parties, because that seems to me to be the antecedent of your next project, which is American Elections Wicked Game. But in that particular one, I loved how you started with the story of the candle maker in Germantown, Pennsylvania in 1795. And Lindsay, one of the things that I 
loved about that is you guys put that into perfect context in the sense that this is only a few years after the Constitution's been adopted. It's during the end of George Washington's presidency. We haven't had a contested election yet. And yet this moment where they look at the fracture and see it start and say, well, maybe this is temporary. I don't think anyone understood what sort of nation America would be or what sort of government the United States of America could be. This story started out in 1795, just six years after George Washington was inaugurated as the first president. And it was Washington for eight years that held this country together without too much strife, just through force of personality and nostalgia for the patriotism of the Revolutionary War era. But very quickly, disagreements arose. We had Federalists and Democratic Republicans with fantastically different views of where the nation should go. And by 1795, those cracks were definitely showing. It's fascinating. Was that the antecedent to your next project, American Elections Wicked Game? It very much was. And in fact, it was almost the same idea. I had been talking with Wondery about a series that explored the political history of America. And at the time, they had decided, well, that would be a great series for American history tellers. And at six episodes, it was. But as we got closer and closer to 2020, and the rhetoric seemed to be more and more inflammatory, I went back to that series and realized that really, it's always been this way. And if it hasn't been always this way, it's been that way, which was just as bad. And I felt that I wanted as a mission to re-educate the American public on how tumultuous American politics, and especially presidential electoral politics, has always been. That if you think it's bad now, you're right, but it was also bad then. And realize that this has been a swirling, churning pot of disagreement from the very beginning, and maybe even take some solace out of that. So that was the genesis of American Elections' Wicked Game, which takes its name from a John Adams' quote. He wrote his his wife, Abigail, insisting that he was going to stay out of it, this silly and wicked game. It's an ambitious project, much more ambitious than the others. Did that give you pause as you embarked on this? No, it did not. Once I had got the, the buy-in and enthusiasm from Steve Walters, the head writer, who now has worked on Age of Jackson with me, Space Race with me on History Tellers, uh, wrote the Iran-Contra American Scandal series, wrote 1865. I'm very familiar with him and his ability to understand my voice and intentions and bring his own to his work. So when he signed on to help me bring Wicked Game to life, it was full steam ahead. We both understood the mission and we both knew that we could make a very, very well-researched and tight historical documentary that was as entertaining as anything else in podcast land. Well, I have to say you have succeeded. Let's take a little listen from the beginning of your episode on the election of 1800. It's Monday, March 6th, 1797, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The sun has set and the streets are quiet. Two men stroll down the sidewalk, newly elected President John Adams and his vice president, Thomas Jefferson. They walk in silence and enjoy a rare moment of peace and quiet, their bellies full with food and drink, their minds racing over the most immediate issue facing Adams' young presidency, U.S. relations with France. 
After a moment, Adams breaks the silence and asks, How was your conversation with Mr. Madison? Jefferson hesitates for a moment. A few days back, just before his inauguration, Adams informed Jefferson that he would be sending a peace envoy to France to put an end to the ongoing trade war. Adams wanted Madison on the job. Mm, yes, I told him of your offer. And? Mr. Madison has declined. I see. I did everything I could to convince him. Adams drops the conversation and returns to his thoughts. Jefferson is the leader of the Democratic Republicans, or as they are often called, the Republicans. He desperately wants a fellow Republican on the peace mission, so he presses the issue. Will you demand Mr. Madison's acquiescence? No, I will not. Perhaps then I might suggest a few alternative candidates. Adams stops walking for a moment and turns very serious. Since last we spoke, objections have been raised by several friends of my administration. After consulting them in my conscience, I have decided to replace Mr. Madison with someone more suitable. Jefferson bridles. He knows exactly what Adams means by more suitable. He will replace Madison with someone less partisan, or rather, someone less Republican, a Federalist. Before Jefferson has a chance to protest, Adams cuts him off. The peace envoy will happen, Mr. Jefferson, with or without representation from both sides of the Federalist question. Do you understand? Yes, Mr. President. Jefferson bites his tongue. He doesn't say what's truly on his mind. He didn't accept the vice presidency to help Adams further the Federalist agenda. He had high hopes for a bipartisan administration. Now, just a few days into Adams' term, those hopes are dashed. The two men come to a fork in the road on their evening stroll, on the corner of Market and Fifth Streets. Adams must go down Market, Jefferson down Fifth. The two men say their goodbyes and part ways, each walking in an opposite direction. And Lindsay, why I wanted to highlight that one is, to me, that was the first really nasty, ugly election, and in some ways comparable to what we may see in 2020. Talk a little bit about that episode and putting that together and what you learned from Adams versus Jefferson, part two. Right. So in 1800, Although we had witnessed the broiling, simmering tensions and faction building that started in Washington's administration and went through Adams, this was the first moment in which it became palpable and a split became probable. So Adams' administration, he was a Federalist, a Northern Federalist, an extension of Alexander Hamilton and many of the Washingtonian policies. Jefferson was a Southerner and the leader of his party, the Democratic Republicans, who were strict constitutionalists and favored states' rights as opposed to the Federalists' concentration of power at the federal level, hence the Federalists. <laughs> the political tensions, which had already been simmering, were how, how the public came to know these uh, political tensions, because the press was weaponized probably for the first time. Adams and Jefferson's or their proxies, especially Hamilton, all deployed their own mouthpieces in the press across the nation to write polemics and editorials of scathing critiques of their opponents and sometimes just outright falsehoods. It was an era of immense scrutiny and storytelling in the press to gin up support. It is something that we probably are unfortunately 
familiar with again today in an era of purported or real fake news. But then it was new and certainly vicious. So even in 1800, we, we were at each other's throats. It's an amazing story. And again, you're only a few episodes in at this point. But I have to say, I, I wait for every one of them to drop. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much for what you do. I think it's a huge service, not only to learning and to people understanding their country, but in a, as you noted, incredibly divided time. I think you give people a little bit of hope that we've seen some of this before and we will make it through. Well, thank you. That's my intent. And uh, thank you very much for talking to me <laughs> about these shows. I, I hope it hits the mark. Absolutely. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Just like the books and the podcasts we feature on the Words Matter Library, we have a rule. To promote a product, you have to use the product. And today I want to talk to you about Purple Mattress. I often have a hard time falling asleep at night or staying asleep. I wake up frequently feeling stiff and in the morning with pain in my neck and back. And the problem with the previous memory foam mattresses I've used is that they get way too hot and uncomfortable. But I just got a Purple Mattress, and this thing is incredible. It's so comfortable. It stays nice and cool at night. It's different than anything I've ever used before. I never wake up in pain, and I've been getting the best sleep I've ever had. If you're struggling to get a good night's sleep, you've got to try Purple Mattress. The Purple Mattress will probably feel different than anything you've ever experienced because it uses a brand new memory foam that was developed by an actual rocket scientist. It's not like the memory foam I'm used to. The Purple Mattress feels unique because it's both firm and soft at the same time. So it keeps everything supported while still feeling really comfortable. Plus, it's breathable, so it sleeps cool. It ends up giving you this zero-gravity-like feel, so it works for any sleeping position. Purple Mattress offers a 100-night risk-free trial. If you're not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. It's backed by a 10-year warranty. There's free shipping and returns and free in-home setup and old mattress removal. You're going to love Purple, and right now our listeners will get a free Purple pillow with the purchase of a Purple mattress. That's in addition to the great free gifts they're offering site-wide. Just text WORDS, one word, to 84888. The only way to get this free pillow is to text WORDS to 84888. That's one word, WORDS, to 84888. Message and data rates may apply. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.